0: thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. Enjoy the podcast. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR 2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Bet UK is empowering the everyday wins. Cheeky grins. (laughs) Big conversations. Budding aspirations. Our goal to make EdTech accessible and teaching exceptional. Join the global education community on the 24th to the 26th of January, 2024, as we make education better together. Visit www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor registration.
1: Good evening, edufolk.
2: It is Wednesday, I believe. I should actually know this because I went back to work today. So I should absolutely be aware what day it is. It is Wednesday. It is The Late Show uh, with the lovely Tom Hopkinsburg, who I can see is ready and raring to go already. And this evening we're talking about building a school reading culture. So I am very excited to hand over to you, Mr. Tom Hopkinsburg, and Happy New Year to you. Happy
3: New Year. Lucy and happy new year to all of our wonderful listeners at Teacher's Talk Radio. Um and yes good evening I believe it is Wednesday Lucy I should know because I am back at work tomorrow. Um, we have an inset day we have a continental style inset day so we've been told um a later start at nine o'clock and earlier finish at half past one um the only downsides to that are we have no break and lunch is not provided for us um so i at the moment i'm still very reserved as to whether or not this is a good idea and a model for other schools to follow for their inset days a shorter day without a break or lunch Uh, we'll see how it goes but yes happy new year um And welcome to Teachers Talk Radio, whether you're one of our loyal many-a-time listeners or a first-time listener. um, Thank you for tuning into this show. And do make sure you check out all of our other shows as well on our website, ttradio.org forward slash listen back. In addition, on the Teachers Talk Radio website, you can now find our wonderful collections. Collections are... A series of shows four shows at a time grouped around particular topics and particular subjects so for example we have four shows on teaching maths we have four shows on teaching english we have four shows um, to come um here's a little insight for you on careers education we have um, four shows on artificial intelligence we have four shows on digital skills um and so four shows on teaching history, of course, um, which is my subject. So for your CPD needs, you've got five, six hours of content there, all in one place, grouped around a particular subject or a particular theme. So the Teachers Talk Radio collections are new on our website, and I'm really, really excited about those. Um, in addition, we have Teachers Talk Radio events, and my first guest today spoke at our inaugural Teachers Talk English online conference. It is Vanessa Sever who is a lead practitioner in English, and she's going to be talking to us today about building a reading culture. But before I bring on Vanessa, it's a great time for me to say that this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Now, talking of reading, uh, the first half of today's show is about how we build a reading culture and engage reluctant readers in our schools and in our classrooms. And the second half of today's show will be a conversation uh, with a variety of teachers about whether we we really need GCSE maths as at grade four or grade C to become a teacher and we're going to be talking to a deputy head of maths on that topic and we're also going to be talking to somebody who's training to be an English teacher who is currently retaking GCSE maths so that's a very exciting conversation for the second half of the show Um, but for the first half of the show we have Vanessa so Vanessa hopefully you are able to unmute yourself on the bottom left of your screen a very good evening and how are you doing?
4: Good evening. Hi, I'm good. Thanks. How are you? Very well,
3: thank you. And I can hear you loud and clear. Now, for those of you who missed the start of the show, if you're listening live or um, if you didn't catch it a couple of minutes ago, Vanessa spoke at our inaugural Teachers Talk English online conference, which I co hosted inadvertently. I wasn't meant to co host at all, but um, I was thrust into it alongside um, the wonderful Tom Rogers. And I first heard Vanessa talking about building a reading culture there. You can catch up with the whole. Old conference four hours i believe more than four hours on the teachers talk radio website under the events tab um but for a slightly extended version of the presentation that vanessa gave there and then on building a reading culture i'm delighted to say that we've got a good um 40 minutes with vanessa now so my first question to you i suppose vanessa is well actually first of all before we get into the questions for those of you who didn't hear you talk at teachers talk english um and for those of uh, listeners who might not know who you are why don't you just introduce yourself
4: um sure thank you so much tom um so hi everyone my name is vanessa um i am a lead practitioner of english i um specifically focus on reading as my area of expertise and um some of the areas and things that i kind of focus on is developing a whole school culture looking at Um, getting our young people reading um, specifically in an environment in which many of our young people historically um, do not have um, a culture of reading Um, somebody who's finished my master's recently in education educational leadership at ucl and basically just a, a lover of teaching
5: really
3: Fantastic. And I I'm current as well as being a history teacher, I am a literacy coordinator. Weirdly, even though reading culture is massively important um, to literacy. It doesn't actually fall under my remit, it falls under our assistant principal's remit, but I sit, because they are my line manager, we do talk about it in our meetings quite regularly, and I do um, chip in um, with my thoughts and suggestions as well. Um, This show, partly, and it's one of the wonderful things about being a Teachers Talk radio host, is that this is something we were really focused on last year and we continue to be focused on this year because it's so important, and I Mm -hmm. wanted to have this conversation essentially as a professional professional development opportunity for myself and for my line manager um, to be able to discuss um, a reading culture in more depth with an expert. And that's why we have Vanessa here. So my first question, I suppose, is why does a reading culture matter in our schools?
5: Excellent. Thank
4: you. Um, So in terms of reading culture and why it's important in your schools, I think um, it's one of those ones where especially if um you're in a school but you know reading isn't necessarily the forefront of what you're doing but you use it as a vehicle to um a certain end it may not necessarily be seen as um the absolute most important but we all are aware of and we all will look at and mark books to some degree um the depth of the english that you're looking at you know will vary but ultimately we are all aware Um, to some extent that there is somewhat sorry about that Um, but many people as I was um, mentioning there um, have had that conversation in the staff room in which they've said you know certain students it's so it's almost frustrating or or almost amazing that they answer questions so well verbally but when it comes to answering a question in their own time there seems to be a loss there and I think one of the things that um, as a school that we can kind of pinpoint that to is to do with reading and a gap in which many of our students have even if they're great in the classroom um getting it done independently when it comes to that reading and comprehension and being able to add those things together many of our students struggle with it and i think in especially with things like covid etc it's really important for us to build that culture because it won't only help us in English but help across the whole school in terms of raising grades raising aspirations and even improving the motivation in our students
3: yeah I agree with all of that it's definitely not just an English department's responsibility to build a reading culture it's the job of all subjects and it can help to raise attainment in all subjects Um, so what does a reading culture in a school actually look like then
4: Sure. So um, a reading culture in a school is definitely something that is multifaceted. Um, With it being this way, it's something that is ever moving and ever changing. So there'll be multiple parts um, in order to run it. And I really think that once a reading culture is um, really established, there's actually a team of people in which you have that oversee it um in order to make it work and work well and that have different parts and look after different avenues but that it would be everything from the really big events such as world book day which is fast approaching to um things like readathons and reading challenges that happen throughout the year it would be things like um in each individual lessons to do with those micro opportunities where students are able to read and work on the different skills such as inference and discussion in order to deepen their understanding. It would be looking at things such as um, comprehension, um, kind of like independent activities in which students can have in which they need to delve into extended texts or being able to be exposed to a wide variety of texts. Um, such as you know newspapers straight through to things like comics but being able to see um, reading in lots of different ways and also the idea of making reading seem normal
3: yeah um making reading seem normal i think that. It really helps to sum up what a reading culture actually is. Um, A reading culture which is sort of ingrained into everyday practice, into every subject, into every classroom. Um, And yeah, as you say, students being exposed to a wide variety of texts um, is essential, um, and actually seeing reading as many forms as possible. So sort of linked to that, something we've touched on already, Um, who who, who is responsible for building a reading culture at a school? we've lost Vanessa again but hopefully we'll get her back in a second um I suppose Vanessa is back there we go who is so who is responsible for building a reading culture in a school
4: so I would say it's beyond the fact it's everyone's responsibility I do think that um individuals who may have um a deeper understanding of of the subject can definitely um all the matter can take reigns of it. So um, in my school, for example, as a lead practitioner, I'm the individual who's somewhat in charge of that. Um, But I definitely reach out to people across the school um, in order to get them involved. So it's not really seen as just an English matter.
3: And so if you're not an English teacher and you're, say, a, you know, in my case, a history teacher or if you're, say, an art teacher or if you're a geography teacher or an ICT teacher, how can you best support a reading culture as a teacher not of English but of another subject?
4: Yeah. So some of the ways that this can be done is um, showing the variety of texts that exist. And, for example, presenting texts that students can read um that are from your particular subjects, so if it's um and when we talk about reading it's even in the in its variety of forms, so you can show students for example um opportunities where if you're let's say you're a geography teacher, audio books in which they can listen to that they that they can use as an opportunity to start to get them into reading. you can then um sh- share with students things like articles in which exist to do with matters that you may be talking about in class and making it relevant to what's going on and finding opportunities to supplement conversations that you might be having with students in the classroom with other wider materials to kind of develop that hinterland knowledge to help students have a wider um, understanding of what's going on, not only within the classroom, but um, actually making it tangible to what's happening in the world. And I think doing so by using opportunities um that are kind of up and coming whatever you know is in the news at that moment if you can relate it to your subjects and relating it to um other subjects and making those cross-curricular links i think is
3: you've just dropped there again vanessa but if i'll I'll chime in again um and i want to pick up a point i'll feed you back now go on Yes. Yeah. You you just dropped. Uh, I think you were making a point. So I'll let you finish it before I try and back in again.
4: I was saying effectively that it's something that um, across the school, you know, everyone can make those cross-curricular links. And I think it's something that once you're able to make those cross-curricular links and link to what's happening in the real world, then um, students are able to see what you're doing with your learning. It's something that's tangible and beneficial to them.
3: Yeah, massively. Um, I want to pick up on the point that you made about hinterland knowledge as well. And I think this is, particularly in my subject history, this is something where... A, a culture of reading in schools um, is so essential for building hinterland knowledge and um, for those people um, who may be new to teaching or may um, not have had this covered in their um, professional development um, hinterland knowledge often goes alongside what we would call core knowledge um, so just to give people an insight into what we mean by um, core and hinterland um, what we would say is the core knowledge are the pieces of information that it's critical that students retain and understand, a pr- complete prerequisite um, for future learning happening at all. And this is something every teacher does, but you know, under the new Ofsted EIF, I say new, it's been around for years now. Um, it's so, you know, teachers and schools and departments are expected to define this core knowledge um, across years and, and explain how it's built upon. Um, But we can't just be about core knowledge um, and simply drilling students on core knowledge would just end up, we'd end up in rote learning and we'd have a curriculum which is simply about the memorisation of facts. And hinterland knowledge um, is this idea, I think it was coined by Christine Council, um, another historian, which is essentially the content, the stories, the examples that help to give meaning to the core um so if i was teaching for example as a history teacher about how well what was i planning at the moment about how the nazis um used terror to control Germany in the 1930s as part of that core knowledge and understanding who the Gestapo were who the SS were for example I might use some hinterland knowledge about life in a German village in the 1930s and I might tell a story about, based on the truth, um, about ordinary German people and their encounters um, in 1930s Germany and what better to find A source of that than in a book, whether it be a piece of historical fiction or whether it be um, the work of a historian. So what Vanessa says here about hinterland knowledge is so, so important and it links so closely into a building culture, uh, a reading culture, because that's sort of that classroom teachers can put into their planning um, using a reading culture to help draw that hinterland knowledge out, to help make sense of the core knowledge. But you could have a classroom teacher doing it in one sub- room, a classroom teacher doing it in another room, but it can get quite disjointed. So what role, Vanessa, do senior leaders have in terms of bringing this all together, in terms of the role of senior leaders supporting a reading culture?
4: Um, thank you. I think that's a really good question. So in terms of um, senior leaders, one of the main roles in which um, senior and middle leaders can really play is is through their conversations and their um, their own personal meetings in which they have is really comparing their personal um, schemes of work in terms of what they're doing and when they're doing these pieces of learning so that they can as much as possible try and plot them so that they're complementary to one another and in c- creating um, a kind of like A network through all your subjects in which they link together you are then able to broaden your students' understanding and actually can um, strengthen the strengthen the links that you're making between the um for the schema in which is being created so for example our year sevens might be doing um a text a monster calls by patrick ness um in english but then at the same time In art, what they would be doing is covering the idea of um, monsters um, and looking at the, the idea of Gothic themes within art at that same time, so that the students are able to deepen and broaden their understanding. And then as teachers in the classroom, it's then the teacher's duty to then make that connection and that learning link explicit to the students so that they're able to see oh yes what I've done in one classroom on the other side of the building is absolutely connected to what I'm doing in this other building and what's done here and similarly we do the same with for example um, when students learn about feminism um, in humanities they then have that opportunity to then draw on that knowledge um, in English when we look at the idea of um, feminist writers
3: yeah so having senior leaders to sort of take that sort of helicopter model to see this happening from above and make sure that it's being reflected in different subjects and different departments and different faculties it's so important and that's sort of how and so senior leaders help to piece everything together um so it goes from being a reading culture in one place to a reading culture across the whole school yeah um really good um now, I want to touch upon um, a survey which is done every year by the National Literacy Trust um, and the 2023 version of this it linked, because it because we talked about sort of how you get reading into the curriculum and the role of teachers and senior leaders um, with that regard. Um, but the National Literacy Trust... Um, ha- in its 2023 survey recorded the lowest level of reading enjoyment since they started their surveys in 2005 um, and for fewer students who traditionally enjoyed reading such as girls and those um, aged 8 to 11 now say they enjoy it. Here are their key findings um, they said just 2 in 5 children and young people aged 8 to 18 said they enjoyed reading in their free time in 2023 fewer children and young people who received free school meals said they enjoyed reading compared with their peers who do not receive free school meals. Fewer boys and girls said they enjoyed reading at 40% versus 45%. Um, The gender gap in reading enjoyment has halved for those between 8 to 18, but this is largely because of a greater drop in reading enjoyment in girls than in boys. Also in terms of reading frequency, fewer than 3 in 10 children and young people um, said that they read daily in 2023, which matched 2022, um, and a 26% decrease in the number of children and young people who read daily in their free time since 2005, from 38% to 28%. So we can embed reading and into our classrooms and into our lessons, and we can embed a reading culture into our schools, and we can sort of do that as teachers and as leaders. But one of the key things about a reading culture, I suppose, is about how we get the students to actually enjoy reading. And one way we can do this um, is to get students talking about reading. So how best, Vanessa, can we get students to talk about reading?
4: Um, great question. So I think there is so many avenues in which you can go down when you think about um, this um, and I think one of the things that work really like work hand in hand with reading is in my sc- in my school, for example, we also have a lead practitioner who's in charge of Oracy. And um, one of the things that um, I've um, done a lot of is like looking at what has been done in my school already with Oracy and how I can then use that to then um feed into what is being done with reading. So using the same language or using the same type of um, almost conversation starters to get our students talking and not only talking in short sentences, such as I like this, um, but I like this because and getting them to actually really think about what particularly is it that they liked about that text that they were reading or that extract or that section that they were reading. And um, some of the ways in which you can do this, through the conversations is as members of staff in terms of our own personal oracy, um, you know, modeling examples of what we liked about an extract and said, Oh, I really like this particular bit because of this. And then turning over the conversation saying, what did you like about it to show that us as individuals are personally interested and invested before asking students for their opinions to show that it's almost in quotations, like safe for students to be able to, be able to like texts Um, Similarly is when it comes to building that reading culture is in your classrooms, Um, for example, in in my school, again, because it's a part of an entire culture and not something that works as an individual part because alone it won't work. But we have things like um, on our doors our currently reading posters as an as an individual thing that will not change your reading culture. But as part of a whole um, holistic look, it can definitely help to build and um, push up that bottom line. And on our doors, because we meet and greet our students on the doors, that is a brilliant place to have conversations with students about the book that you're reading on your door. And maybe as you're waiting for the rest of the class to come along or you're talking to students at the door as you're sending them off. You can talk to students about the books and what you've read so far and give them an update as you're reading. We also use um, opportunities such as dear. So if we do drop everything and read during that time, sometimes um, I might stop the 10 minutes of dear that we might do at the beginning of the lesson early so that I can ask students what is it that they've just read And what's happened, what they think is going to happen next and begin conversations about prediction and inference and get them to, you know, give their book a rating out of 10 so far and say, based on what you've said this lesson, how has it changed from what you said last lesson, etc. And really getting students to be invested in what's going on. And sometimes you actually have other students um, jumping in with their opinions about what they think is going to happen in other people's books. And that's a great way to foster that environment.
3: Yeah, Christopher Vows, who's one of our hosts and is a um, teacher of English and head of sixth form, um, says it's really important to make the reading culture visible and the staff need to be seen doing it too. And you've just made that point there, Vanessa, about actually having those conversations staff to student and student to staff conversations about reading. One of the pitfalls of the thing that you just mentioned there, which is having that, that sort of sheet on your classroom door saying, I'm currently reading this, is if a Child walks past a room, um, or has a lesson in a room every week for, you know, a year. And the book that's on the front of that thing poster um, in September is the same as the one that's there the following July. Then mm-hmm. it starts to become a gimmick, and it um, and it loses its power. So ensuring that you have leadership of things like that, and that you have regular reminders, and that um, and that you know that idea of over communication. Um, is so so important in terms of keeping that reading culture alive and ensuring that it's fresh and up to date now one of the things that you mentioned there is um, dear or drop everything and read now there'll be many a senior leader i imagine there'll be a senior there'll be senior leaders in schools who a few years ago maybe when they took up their position or they might have been in there for a while were told you're going to lead our school's reading culture and they've gone and looked for things which they can do, and they found drop everything and the read, and they thought, that's great, we can do that. So every so often, we're going to drop everything and we're going to read. Um, I think it's one of those strategies, we don't do it as a school, because I'm aware of the pitfalls of doing that, and I think, Vanessa, you've already touched on mm. one of those, which is the importance of accountable accountable reading, so ensuring that students are accountable for what they have read, so stopping them early and getting them to reflect on what they've read, um, ensuring that they have that. Um, but more widely, I suppose, Vanessa, as a strategy, what are the benefits and the pitfalls of using DEAR as an approach to building a reading culture?
4: Yes, absolutely. Um, DEAR is something that it has, its, as you said, it has its benefits and it does have the issues um, that are there. And I think some of the benefits in which exists is that students especially your avid readers are able to read at their own pace and are able to um read read to themselves because that's something that's an important skill when it comes to the ideas of fluency um and being able to practice that kind of idea of comprehending um comprehending pieces of writing um independently without somebody standing around to help navigate and explain each part but being able to um, have that persistence to be able to finish the to get to the end of their sentence and um, be able to actually cognitively put together um, pieces of work. So there are benefits within that. There's also benefits in terms of like research that talks about the ideas of um, independence and resilience and the idea of being able to um, um, be be able to continue a piece of work without stopping, um, every few minutes is actually important when it comes to overall comprehension and understanding, because having pieces of work almost broken up too much, which can sometimes be something as teachers we do, where we almost oversave our students, um, is something that when students are actually allowed to almost finish a whole page or a chapter, they're able to develop a wider picture of what's going on and then use that picture to fill in the gaps that they may have not understood initially. there's loads of benefits in terms of those areas and that's actually been found to be really beneficial for um, students of with lower reading ages but some of the obviously the the deficits or the downfalls of um, models such as dear is that in and of itself um, leaving students to just go off and read by themselves isn't really pedagogy um, because there's no way for you to actually know that students are actually reading or if they're just staring at their page and whilst you know students may be silent it doesn't necessarily mean that they are working more so than they are just being compliant and and um, being silent in that moment and what you want it to be is as beneficial as it, as it can be. So that's why it needs to be accompanied with the many other things, such as the monitoring of the books that the students are reading. Have they moved on from this text that they've had in their book and in their hand, or have they had this same book in their hand for the whole year? Um, have When it comes to things like um, with the um, the currently reading posters, as you've mentioned, in the same way, is it going to be the same poster that's going to be there all year, Or is it going to be monitored? So, for example, at my school, um, what I've done is I've created an Excel document so that as forced members of staff, once they've changed their poster um, and also in their signature, they can just type in, copy the title that they've put there and just paste it on there so that I'm aware that staff are actually changing what they've got. Um, as a way for me to be able to know what's going on whole school, but be able to make connections and links about books so that I have ideas about what I can generate and do next. So I think when it comes to our students, it's really about um, if a student ever mentions a book, I can be like, oh, I know Miss X, Y and Z is also reading this text. You should speak to her about it and make those connections and conversations to show that we're all readers.
3: Yeah, I think that's a really strong and succinct evaluation there of the. Uh, it is one of those things which, you know, schools often use it not necessarily for benefits in terms of literacy, but as a sort of a um, sort of behaviour settler, ensuring that there's a settled start um, to lessons in different subjects and without really thinking about the impact of it in terms of actually boosting students' literacy. Um, and a strategy which is effective, I, well, the research suggests it is effective. Um, the very famous Just Reading so, um, study, um, which showed that teacher modelling um, fluent pacey reading of a text that student, all students in the class follow together um, can help to boost um, disadvantaged students' reading ages um, more so than um, other students as well um so there are lots of different strategies which can be used um i'm sure people would have seen um it certainly blew up on twitter i think both positively and um some people going what on earth is this where one particular trust um has a whole trust policy of all students following the same book with a ruler books flat on the desk um, as the teacher models allowed um you know and there are times possibly when autonomy um goes out of a window on that but it is important to have a consistent house style i suppose um we've got about 15 minutes left with you vanessa before we move on to the second part of the show and we've talked about the re- a reading culture and we've talked about what that looks like and who's responsible and ways in which we can do that i want to talk in particular about reluctant readers and why some young people are reluctant to read so why are some young people reluctant to read and could you just talk us through some of the common stereotypes I suppose about the sorts of students who are reluctant readers
4: yeah so I think when it comes to reluctant readers there are so many different reasons as to what this can be so for example it might be um, a student might have an undiagnosed. A student may have an undiagnosed need when it comes to reading. So, um, for example, they might be dyslexic. They might have found um, that to be something that uh, was a stepping stone in which they weren't, where their needs weren't being met. So they found reading to be far more difficult. um, And therefore, that's almost turned them away from or off of reading completely. Um, And, you know, once, if that is something that is there, that's something that can be picked up maybe through a school's um, screening efforts that are done routinely termly etc through a reporting system in which uh, members of staff if they have certain concerns with a certain students reading or or anything like that they're able to send to um certain teams um such as this um the team in which may look at Um, support and reading such as dyslexia or handing out reading rulers etc so you have you it could be a need such as that it could be for example something which isn't necessarily a need but something to be aware of in the sense of um, a student may have English as a second or even third language and with that being the case they may be someone who who could still read but maybe somebody who um, actually is in a position where maybe the books that they're reading at this point are perhaps above their current reading age. So maybe they need some support in within that or the transition or translation between certain, between their languages. Um, it could be things such as students haven't quite found the books that they enjoy, which is a common one specifically, um, particularly for boys, um, trying to ensure that therefore your books are actually representative of the students in which you have. So for example, something that um, I've done at my school um, with um, our library leaders, and then as um, what we'll be doing once we've you know raised the funds for it is to go on to do a full on student survey, looking at our students holistically and the books that they want, so that we can then be able to buy books that actually represent the students within our school community. So if our students are saying that they want, um, I don't know, manga, or they want, um, you know, more. Teen novels from a particular author whatever it may be f- for us to try and find books that actually support their their interests so that we can find books that they're interested in and then also try to widen that by finding books of certain genres that they're interested in that they highlighted but then finding them at different levels so that that we are able to support them at all different points and speaking on levels you also have the idea of certain students who may um, you know be at a secondary school level but aren't reading at that point. And that could be because of support in terms of reading at home or maybe they've missed out in many years of school. We've had things like COVID, et cetera. So it's really about trying to work out the actual problems that you have and then trying to diagnose them.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head there and particularly there's a link between students who are reluctant to read and also those who struggle with reading and... Particularly for students who we pick up in year seven who are weaker readers um, and have been sort of flagged up through diagnostic testing, whether that's sort of a more generalist test like um, the NGRT or something which um, sort of goes into, say, maybe a phonics screener or um, a fluency um, assessment or something like that. Um, You know, these are students who may have struggled all the way through primary school and, you know, and really struggled to access the curriculum uh, because of their lower reading age or because of maybe undiagnosed dyslexia or maybe because they can decode, but they can't comprehend. And, you know, it would make perfect sense that these students who struggle with reading don't enjoy reading. But there's also those students who can read and can read well, but just, you know, aren't infused and aren't engaged in it Um, and so finding those books which match those students interests is really really important Um, my final question then I suppose this is one for sort of senior leaders, I suppose, but also anybody who's accountable in a school for wider reading and a culture of reading, which is how leaders can best measure the impact of a reading culture, um, because it might be part of your school improvement plan. And, you know, you need to find ways in which to measure the impact of the stuff that you're implementing in schools. Um, so, Vanessa, what are your thoughts then as to how leaders can best measure the impact of of a reading culture
4: um so there there are many different measures in which could be used both like quantitative and qualitative so for example um one of the measures in which we're trialing at my school at the moment is um what i've just made like some book review um sheets which are pretty short and and sweet ones so that we're not asking students to write paragraphs and paragraphs but they have there's no real limit but there is there is space for them to write if they want to write but effectively there is an incentive of you know if you have completed this you have the opportunity to receive um, like an achievement slip which can then go into a raffle which goes on to other things but by them having this opportunity to do that they we're then able to monitor how many of our students are reading and um, are reading texts of their own, and and being able to monitor in terms of what they're able to get out of it. But then there are also in, in terms of subjects such as English, we have you know comprehension activities in which we complete where you have that as an opportunity to see how students are doing in terms of a miniature form of like assessment for learning and how things are going. Um, we also have, um, other methods in which we're doing such as, um, wider reading packs in which what I've done is I've worked with, um, subject leads across the school who have, um, all come up with one wider reading article per term for each year group so that they've been collated into a booklet so that each year group has one for each term where using that booklet, if students, um, Students are then signposted to what is happening, what's happening in class and where it relates to the wider reading. Um, so, again, linking to the idea of hinterland knowledge and that opportunity to widen their understanding. Um, they can then read those wider reading articles in which have been selected for them for the topics they're doing in school, but then also have the opportunity to receive something from it if they choose to then go on to complete the um, r- um, book review um forms as well so that's one of the methods the main methods that we're currently trialing at the moment um, to try and get our students reading and also talking to us about what they're reading
0: this show is brought to you in partnership with john Cat educational publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world have you checked out their latest releases use the code jcttr 2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Bet UK is empowering the everyday wins, cheeky grins, (laughs) big conversations, budding aspirations, our goal to make EdTech accessible and teaching exceptional. Join the global education community on the 24th to the 26th of January 2024 as we make education better together. Visit www.uk.betshow.com forward slash visitor registration.
3: Yeah, a very, really good idea, and it's links very similar to something which we've been doing in our school for the last, well, for the last since um, last summer actually, which is that we have a sick form, and we have, you know, we've got quite a big sick form. I think we've got two hundred and fifty students now across year twelve and year thirteen, and each faculty area. Um, once a year gets its year 12s to write articles um, in their subject areas um, about something that interests them in their subject but ideally is linked to either the Key Stage 3 curriculum or the Key Stage 4 specifications in their subject and these are put together It's, co- it's all, so the students' work is coordinated by subject experts whether they are a TLR holder or a um, sick form teacher in that department um, or the head of the department and then it's overseen by myself and i have the job of publishing it all together in our in our subject journals Um, and we've done um, a humanities social sciences one we've done a science one we've done a pe one and we've done a languages one as well and that's going to be we hope a really useful method to get students reading around their subjects because we're going to put copies of the journals in classrooms and in communal areas um, for key stage four so that these students who might be interested in studying these subjects at sixth form um, have the opportunity to read articles which have been written by our sick forms on their particular subjects, um, and it's also really useful for those year twelves because then they can put on their personal statement. I, you know, about what it meant to them to write an article for publication for a school publication um, around and showing that wider interest of their subject as well, especially if they want to go and study that subject at university. So that's one thing we're doing at the moment. We're looking at how we can measure the impact of that by doing student voice and also publishing them on the school website and on our school social media accounts with QR codes um, to allow parents and members of the community to give their feedback on that. And of course, sort of wider things as well about sort of um recruitment into sick form but obviously you can't Mm -hmm. really use this as a measure Mm -hmm. of that um vanessa before you go um one final thing um your top tip for anybody um, in any role looking to help build a reading culture in their school
4: um i would definitely say that what you should do first is look for who your reading champions are um across the school so for example, I know one of my reading champions is um, a teacher in maths. Um, I know that another one is one of our IT teachers. I know another one is um, one of the behaviour leads for, um, who's head of year, year nine. Thinking about these different people and their different avenues in which they are, it helps to show that reading um, doesn't actually have the same face of it being like an English teacher, but it's the idea that it's, it's something that is seen as a wraparound effect where everyone cares about it and everyone wants to be invested. Um, and working with these different people from these different spaces helps you be able to get lots of different opinions on um, reading and how when you, for example, come up with a strategy and you roll it out, how it well it actually goes um, and you get to have those opinions from people who aren't necessarily within your echo chamber and I think that's really beneficial. Um, and in the same way, not only just with staff, but also with students. So one of the things we're doing with students is getting them to um, we've got our own mini like podcast series, which is run in school by students. Um, and we've got some of the students talking about their books and doing um audio book reviews and talking about the books and sharing them with each other so that's another way in which we're trying to promote that reading and love for reading so it's really trying to think about those avenues and your kind of core people in which you can um, use as your reading champions across the school and help them help you to develop your structure
3: Thank you very much, um, Vanessa, and definitely a point for any initiative in the school, for any leader trying to um, launch something, finding those staff members who are going to be the champions for your project. And, it, you know, it works for a reading culture and it works for everything as well. So, Vanessa, thank you very much for giving up your time on a Wednesday evening to talk to us about building a reading culture. I hope you enjoy the rest of your evening and I hope that you enjoy your return to work as well.
4: Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye.
3: Thank you. Goodbye. Um, talking of reading, this show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational Publishing, professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for twenty percent off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Now, um, I want to talk about the thing which has been all over EduTwitter over the Christmas holidays. Um, A lot of us are returning back to work. And as we always know, during the holiday um, period, there's always, always, something which gets teachers on social media talking and this time it was about comments made by somebody senior in a organization representing independent schools um, suggesting that GCSE maths um, could be removed as a requirement for those looking to train to teach and this was wildly controversial we had quite a lot of teachers saying this would be a really bad idea it would deprofessionalize um, the teaching profession and it would lower standards and it would um, essentially mean that you could reduce standards when it came to paying teachers and this wider status of teachers um, amongst the general public other people saying this could help with recruitment it could help get people into teaching who may not otherwise have considered teaching as a profession um but there are far, a few far fewer of those i think and i want to have a quick look now i we tweeted it out at teachers talk radio um Teacher Tap did a survey yesterday um, about whether GCSE maths and English should be requirements to be a teacher. For maths, um, it was 54% of teachers strongly agreed that people should be required to pass a GCSE level qualification in maths before they can train to become a teacher. 34% agreed rather than strongly agreed so in total that was 88% agreeing um, and 11% disagreeing 1% couldn't answer Um, for GCSE English 65% strongly agreed 31% agreed, 3% disagreed so you had 90 um, 96% of um respondents saying that people should be required to pass a GCSE level qualification in English um, before they can train to become a teacher. 96% of my math suggests that's 24 out of 25 respondents there. Um, Interestingly though you've got more respondents and the same respondents saying that people should have a GCSE qualification in English rather than maths and even though it was overwhelmingly in favour of having a maths qualification um, it is slightly less than for English. Now to join me to discuss um, the potential pitfalls and possible benefits of um, removing GCSE maths as an entry requirement for teaching. um, First of all we have Charlie Dessa who is a deputy head of maths. Charlie um, good evening you should be able to unmute yourself on the bottom left. Um, How are you doing? Hi, Tom. Yeah, I, I'm well, thanks. Um, thanks thanks for letting me on the show. Absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, so I suppose we should start by considering what impact would removing the requirement to have GCSE maths to become a teacher, what impact would this have on the perception of maths in schools? You, you have a particularly important insight here as a maths teacher and a deputy head of maths. So what impact would removing GCSE maths have on how maths is perceived in schools?
1: Yeah, so the way I'd answer that is I split it into perceptions um, by teachers and perceptions by students. So I think first I deal with students. So I think that some students and not all have negative perceptions of teachers as, as people who are unskilled. And that's a societal narrative that most teachers are aware of. And I think lowering a requirement um, or, or removing this requirement to pass Maths you see can perpetuate this narrative among students. I think my students were um, amazed to hear that the majority of the stu- uh, teachers in my maths department, and my both this school and my previous school, had an A star in maths. They they were they found that unbelievable. So to remove the requirement could perpetuate that narrative of the teacher being unskilled. And then talking about perceptions by teachers, I think even though I don't expect an English or history or non math specialist teacher to be uh, responsible for helping students access content in maths. Of course not, as much as I shouldn't be held, held accountable for, for helping students in, in English. I do still think that every single teacher, regardless of whether they teach maths, should be responsible for encouraging and motivating students to pass that. And I think if they themselves have not passed it, then fostering that culture of academic achievement in maths may be more difficult for them. Out of it, out of interest, you said
3: that most of the teachers you'd worked with in your departments got an A star in maths. Um, roughly, what proportion of teachers you've worked with in maths departments have a degree
1: in maths? Yeah, that's always a really funny and contentious question. Uh, I myself don't have a maths degree, and I'd probably say around twenty percent have a maths degree.
3: This is interesting, of course, because I'm a history teacher. I have a history degree. I applied for a um, program to become a teacher, which I won't name for um, fear for fear of um, a wrath of Tom Rogers. But um, I was offered the, an opportunity to train to become a maths teacher. Um, I have an A level in maths. I have a grade A, which I'm very pleased with. I have an AS in further maths, which I got an A in, which I was even more chuffed with. Um, but I didn't feel as though I wanted to train to teach maths even though there were financial benefits in it compared to training to teach history although I was the last year of the nine thousand pound bursary for history we now have no bursary to train to teach history Um, I just felt as though it couldn't be something I really felt passionately about um, as somebody who hadn't done maths for three years um, certainly academically Um, and yeah I think it's really the be important to be expectation, but all teaching staff do encourage and motivate students um, to achieve academic success in all subjects. Um, that's really important. Um, I sometimes our we have period six. So our resource centre is open for students of all year groups at the end of the school day for an hour um, to go and do homework or additional work. Um, and it's right next to our staff room. And it's actually between the staff room and our reprographics. So if I'm going to do some printing, I'll walk through the resource centre and there might be a student. It might be one of my GC- year 11 history students who's working for a past maths paper. And I'll go and sit with them and I'll be like, well, have you thought about this question? Have you thought about doing it like this? And I know I'm not there, math teacher i know i'm not doing them a massive disservice um because i i hope i'm not getting it wrong and if i do feel that i'm getting it wrong i'm going to stop helping me like right you better ask your teacher but i do feel so having those teachers of all subjects actually not saying oh i hated maths i was rubbish at maths but saying "I'm, you know i don't teach maths but i think it's really important and actually showing that awareness of how they can help with maths is really important and one of the other questions I wanted to ask you as a um, maths teacher is how hard it is to actually attain a GCSE grade four in maths. I was looking at grade boundaries for GCSE maths and I was surprised at how low they were. Um, so how hard is it to actually get a grade
1: four? Yeah so that's another question which is which is asked quite a lot and if, if I give my really honest answer um, very easy. Um, as you just said the grade boundaries so I teach at Excel, and since the new specification came out and was first assessed in uh, summer of 2017, the pass mark was 17%. So to pass your GCSE, you need to gain 17% of the marks. I think that um, is, is obviously a really, really low um, requirement. And so for me, um, I don't think it's uh, very difficult to pass it. And I think um, someone who I really admire within... Um, the maths, maths space, and education is Mark McCourt. Um, his book, Teaching for Mastery, is is, is really um, has been really really impactful for me. And, and one of the key themes in in that book and about mastery in general is the idea that every student, um, with the exception of neurodivergent learners, should be able to access not even a foreign maths, but but higher. And so, um, I do think that it is attainable to every every student to be able to pass maths.
3: Yeah, I mean, Mark's been on the show before. We've had Pete Mattock on as well um, to talk about his book as well. Um, so we've had, um, you know, we've had plenty of maths teachers on Teachers Talk Radio talking about maths and the um, different, and, you know, and how how to make it easier. 17, 17% to yeah. get grade four. Is that, on, is that on higher? Yeah, so that's on higher. Okay, yeah. So, because I mean, one of the things about mass papers as well is um, they i mean I'm, I'm this might be a gross oversimplification here from a history teacher but the idea is they start easy and get harder so yeah. if you have students who are on that three to four boundary then getting them to focus on their past papers on the first half of the papers on topics like um, ratio proportion um you know the, the, the relatively simple stuff that can really help them get a grade four and to an extent the harder topics that turn up later on paper stuff like circle theorems possibly um they can ignore that because if they mm-hmm. because if they don't you know if they don't need that to correct grade four then why do they need to focus on it if their aim is to get a grade four is that am i am i talking nonsense yeah. or is no, that no
1: no that's that's there? really not an simple simplification that you, you you've hit the nail on the head i so last year i had a um set five year 11 class um and it was split so we had, we had six, we had 12 classes six in each band so two sets sixes two set fives and every student in that set five class was, was being put on the higher paper. But m- the majority of them were at risk of not passing their maths GCSE. So as you said, we were targeting them with the crossover content. So that content is the content that is in both the higher and foundation paper. And in the higher paper, that content would be, as you said, within the first 10, 11 questions. So with that class, I didn't expect any of them from February onwards to be accessing any content past question 13 maybe they'd grab one or two marks for working but they'd be gaining their marks from the from the first half of the paper and even then to get that grade four um they would only need about half of the marks from that first half um and i think uh, it's important to bring in the conversation to the foundation paper the pass mark for foundation is on average, since, since it was uh, started in 2017, on average, it's 56%. So, of course, it's you have to gain way more marks to pass on the foundation paper. So every um, department, every year, will have that really difficult ethical question as well. Where do I place these students? Do I put them on foundation or do I put them on higher? Now, we would look at their... Um, uh, data from their mocks and see how did they answer those crossover questions right to best place them or if they answered the crossover questions right well maybe i should put them in higher but if they didn't then i'll put them in foundation but um and that game is always tried to play uh, to be played by, by by um maths departments to in order to gain as many pass marks as we can but yeah you you, you didn't oversimplify that it was, a, it was a very valid point <laughs> well thank you um and. Now there
3: are some people who argue that removing the requirement to have a passing GCSE maps would actually be beneficial for the teaching profession. What do you make of those arguments, particularly those around recruitment and retention?
1: Yeah, so I think the only reason why this question has really become relevant um recently is because of the teacher recruitment um crisis. There's no other reason I, I I would I would think that it's become relevant. And the question to answer is um would Removing the requirement. Um, so, if if we were to remove the quri- requirement, it would enable people who haven't haven't passed their maths GCSE to become teachers. So, the question is, are there a large amount of te- uh, a large amount of would be teachers who have not passed their maths GCSE who want to be teachers? Now, of course, there's no data on that. Um, but in my opinion, I don't think there are a large enough number of would be teachers who have not passed their maths GCSE to actually put a dent in the recruitment or crisis figures that we have seen.
3: Yeah, it's really interesting. We're going to be talking to Kirsty in a minute, who actually is currently retaking GCSE maths. Um, and, you know, I suppose GCSE maths is a useful metric for later life. Um, and what other consequence is perhaps of devaluing it and invalidating the usefulness of passing GCSE maths?
1: Yeah, I think, I think yeah, you, you, you hit a really good point. I think if you remove the requirement, it does invalidate um, the usefulness of passing it to some degree. Um, and I think the knock-on effects of that can be um, quite big. For example, if students are aware of course they might not want to become teachers most students might not but if they're aware of the fact that you don't even need to have passed it to become a teacher I think that will devalue um, and invalidate the usefulness of it and I think students might then have a poor attitude to maths and what we've already discussed this but teachers will and that will have a knock on a knock on effects across the education system so and I think that's what all maths teachers, but all teachers in general, should not want to happen is we don't want to devalue maths in any way when it when it already has um, uh, a kind of negative societal outlook. And I think a really good point to think about this would be if the government were to to um, take away this requirement. Well, I think it would be at heads with um, Rishi Sunak's current um, view on maths teaching in general is it, it wouldn't really it would be at heads with with the idea of, of maths to eighteen. Um, and, and yeah, I don't don't think that, that it would be good for, for to, to keep up the value of maths in education
3: worth pointing out of course that the suggestion hasn't come from the government and so I'd be very surprised if Rishi Sunak went along <laughs> with it as well um, Charlie, thank you very much for your contributions do feel free to stay around and um, chip in at any other point in the next half an hour um, I want to move on to Trillo Now, um, now Kirsty, you are um, on your journey to become an English teacher, you are studying a BA in English Language and Literature with the O you um you want to become a history teacher and you are currently retaking gcse math so hopefully you're on it you are able to unmute yourself on the bottom left um how is this going for you Kirsty? hi
2: tom yeah it's it's going okay so far so i'm studying um the through the open university doing my english literature and language to become an english teacher um but the requirement to get onto the skit course that I want to do, they require an outright GCSE in maths. No equivalent. They want full blown GCSE. Um, so I, I took the plunge and I went back. It's my old nemesis. Didn't pass it at high school. Didn't pass it again at college. I've failed it every time. <laughs> so it's it's. Uh...
3: Why out? Why why do you think this? was then
2: i think for me, me and numbers don't mix it's it's just me in general <laughs> to be honest i'm definitely more of a language person more for the books and the literature um i think with it having maths is so straight to the point there is a yes or no answer um i think with english you can have a bit more opinion and as long as you can back the argument up you can't really be wrong maths is totally different you have to be right and you, you, there's no other way um so yeah that that's what i've struggled with
3: because we, we've we had charlie on um who's you know he's deputy head of maths and he said that really it's not it's not that difficult at all to get a gcc grade for in maths we looked at the grade boundaries and we talked about sort of mastering the first half a paper whether you know on foundational and higher um, and maybe getting the odd mark elsewhere. Is that something, we, you know, you, you've clearly found it difficult to get a GCSE grade for in Mavset, all of these different stages. Um, so what do you make of this idea that actually – it's not that difficult
2: yeah I think the markings have actually come down since I mean I'm 31 now so it's it's going back some years um when I sat it and I do think that the grades have come down I mean I'm very blessed this time around at my local college um I've got a wonderful tutor and I'll be honest with you Charlie won't like this but I, I could not stand maths I, I was of the opinion well why do I need maths <laughs> I'm not going to walk near a maths room. I don't want to be anywhere near the maths department. But then on the flip side, when I went to college, my maths tutor sat me down and he said, no, listen, it's integral. It's a huge part of what you're going to be doing on... You know, you use maths every day. We see maths in, the, in our normal world. We go to the shop in the morning on our way to work. We buy a bottle of water. We're doing maths. Maths is everywhere. And when he put that to me, I thought, actually... You
3: know, I, I need this. So it would be much easier for you in terms of your skip course um, if you didn't need GCSE grade four in maths to get onto that course. So generally speaking, do you think it's important that teachers have this pass in maths or would you be happy to see it go?
2: No, no, I think it's integral. I, th- I think it's necessary. I think as teachers... I mean, obviously, I'm not there yet, but I wouldn't feel comfortable standing there in front of a room full of 14, 15 year old children, telling them, "Oh, you have to have these GCSEs." But I don't need it to stand here and tell that to you. And I think, no, we need to practice what we preach. If if we, like Charlie said, it's an integral part of 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 having it. Really, we we need it to to preach it to them.
3: Uh, yeah, I mean, if you were um... there saying oh i only got a grade two in maths and look at me i'm teaching now um you'd be impact but what what that message would be to other students would be well i don't need to try because you know miss has got a job as a teacher and hasn't got a gcse pass in maths so why do i need it so yeah i think that's a really important argument which I've heard a lot of people make but why do you think then we've had the teacher tap survey um, results published today 10,000 teachers you've got 96% saying that they need a qualification in English and only I say only but 88% saying they need a qualification in maths why do you think more teachers think you should have a GCSE in English um, to be a teacher compared to GCSE
0: maths
2: I think that mainly comes down to obviously we're communicating in English, um, we 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 write in English, so obviously our grammar, our syntax, all has to be in place. I think that probably pushes the board a little bit more. But when you do look into it, when you look at what you're going to be doing as a teacher, it, it maths is, in my opinion, and it's hard to say wanting to go into the English department, but maths is just as important.
3: Yeah, um, I remember I remember when I first applied for my current TLR which is literacy coordinator at the time it's literacy and numeracy coordinator and I was asked there which is more important literacy or numeracy and I said well it's got to be literacy hasn't it and they sort of and I I didn't get it and afterwards they said well actually they're both as important as each other um, and you know um, and that when students go out into the wider world having that numeracy is just as important as having that literacy otherwise you find that actually you won't survive very long if you don't if you are not numerate um we do have Derek and we have Karina on as speakers as well and I know they have something to say about this um question about whether should about whether GCSE maths should be a requirement to be a teacher um if you'd like to comment and you're listening live then it used to be a speech bubble it's no longer a speech bubble on my app it's a um, white plus in a blue circle on the bottom right of your screen Um, you are able to tweet us with your thoughts about whether GCSE maths should be a requirement to be a teacher if you are want to be 10% braver and take the plunge and speak then on the bottom left of your screen there is a request microphone button and we'll be able to bring you on as a speaker Um, before we hear from we'll go to Karina then Derek but before we hear from Karina um, this show is brought to you in partnership with John Katz Educational publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world have you checked out their latest releases use the code JCTTR 2324 for 20% off your order date this out Visit Johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles. And advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. I can see we've got some regular TTR listeners in the studio and we've got some first timers as well. Um so we've got um I believe it's Rashid Adin, the NASUWT senior vice president, who's been in many of our spaces before. Good evening. Um, we have Graham who's here all of the time. Good evening to you. We've got Antoinette, who are haven't seen before so if you are a first time listener then a good evening to you Peter who's here all the time Uh, we've got Benjamin who I haven't seen before so good evening to you Cosima as well Mrs Markham I'm not sure how many times I've seen you on Teachers Talk Radio Um, good evening and we've got um, Eleanor as well Um, a good evening to you as well Um, so whether you are a regular Teachers Talk Radio listener or you're a first time Teachers Talk Radio listener it's a real delight to Um, have you listening in and of course if you're listening on demand then a good evening to you as well you can catch us on Spotify on Apple Podcasts and of course on our website tturadio.org forward slash listen back we also have our collections um, on our TTR website as well our collections are shows grouped by topic and by subject allowing you to have domain specific CPD at your fingertips we have four shows on the TTR website at the moment on teaching maths so do go and check those out and if you were here for our earlier conversation with Vanessa about building a reading culture we have four shows on there about teaching English and we have four shows on there as well about literacy um, so those are some fantastic places to go and um, boost your professional development as well as of course the John Cat Bookshop Karina is here, Karina Garrick is a head teacher um, I tried to get her on to a previous show but <laughs> She um, had to pull out at the last minute but Karina's here today. Karina, um, you're a head teacher yes. what impact do you think removing GCSE maths as an entry requirement into teaching would have on the profession?
5: Well I think it would undermine the profession um, immensely and I think it, it would stop it being a profession. Um, I mean I, I, you know I, I've heard what the other people have said and obviously I can't particularly add anything more to the rationale for needing maths you know it's a Profession and I think the recruitment crisis, partly as well, is that um, teaching isn't always viewed as a profession, unfortunately, in today's society. You know, I've been doing the job for 30 years, and I trained at age. Um, it was a four year degree course with uh, a subject specialism, and of course, to go to university, etc., you would expect. The fundamental GCSE requirements, and I think to remove it would simply undermine teachers as as professionals. I also think it it people couldn't teach without GCSE maths. We don't. We even have it as a requirement for teacher assistance. We don't employ any teacher assistants in our school unless they have A to C grade English and maths. I, don't, I understand that would be a requirement in all schools, as far as I'm aware. <laughs>
3: well, well, I've been talking to some people who run initial teacher training courses. Now, in Kirsty's case, she needs a GCSE grade four in maths. Um, in other courses, an equivalency qualification um, will get you onto those courses. And then if that course will allow you to get QTS, then that allows you to become a teacher anywhere, which is interesting. But um, I was this point then about you expect well all of your teachers in your school to have a g you know a gcse pass well, equivalent.
5: In yes i mean i'm understanding that 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 would be taken as read that it would either be gcse or or, or um functional skills equivalent mm. um
3: and so you know some people say that dropping this requirement would improve recruitment and retention <laughs> but you don't see it that way
5: no no, and and to be, you know, for I mean, I was reading, funny enough, a tweet um, tonight, which was talking about early years uh, teachers, and I'm thinking, you know, there, there's a possibility that people might think if you're teaching four-year-olds or three-year-olds, the maths that would be needed there would be minimal, you know, at numbers to ten or whatever, but. I think GCSEs and, and grade requirements are more about your general standard of intelligence than intellect. And I'm not trying to decry people. I struggled with maths, I'll be honest. i got a B, it you know, and I didn't find it as easy. I'm a linguist, I, I'm an English specialist, but I got it because as um, Charlie was saying, I think it's a fundamental level of um, ability to study, ability to learn. And if, for example, you want to go into leadership in teaching, for example, you need to be able to analyze data. You need to be able to manage budgets. If you haven't got GCSE maths, you can't do that. So it it would just stop people being able to get on anywhere in their career. They would be fundamentally babysitters. I I mean, that sounds very contentious and I, I don't want to offend anybody in what I'm saying. But the job you know, if you want to go into teaching, it's a career. If you want to move on with your career, you need to be able to write letters, communicate, you know, you need to be using IT skills as well. You know, all the fundamentals, don't you? I I, I think, you know, in in truth, I can't see how you could remove it. And if you did, I, I think that the people you would then get into the job You know, maybe I'm not suggesting that we haven't got people that wouldn't have valuable skills, but I don't think there would be the career progression available to them. I don't think that perhaps they would be able to do the other aspects of the job behind the scenes, if you like. Um, You know, as I say, the data, the budget, even if you asked, you know, people to manage different sort of resources and things, I might say to a member of staff, you know, how many books do you need for your class? Can you work out, you know, how much is going to cost with the tax shop money? Can you count it up? You need to have that kind of level to be able to do the job sorry i haven't got much more to offer
3: <laughs> no I, no i fully understand the points you're making particularly about the you know the the new the, being new in terms of you know, analysing data, especially if you're going to be in any leadership position, but even you know, I I leave politics at A level. I don't get paid for it because you've got 11, only got 11, <laughs> got 11 students, but I've still got to analyse the yeah. data drops every time and sort of you know and um, look at you know and at that and you know in the summer etc. Um, and budgeting, I don't, I, I, fortunately, I don't have enough responsibility to be in charge of a budget, um, yeah. but yeah it's one of those things which if you're entering the profession you don't really think about but actually um to be able to be numerate in terms of you know managing a budget especially when schools are so cash strapped as they are you know really really important and certainly once you're you know in your position um head teacher's position karina um being able to manage those budgets does require a high level of um I can't think of a word. Numerateness is probably not a you know, word.
5: And, and, you know, sorry to interrupt, but I was going to say um, I have got O-level. I'm sorry, I'm so old. I've got an O-level in maths, not a GCSE. <laughs> it's OK. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's equivalent, I'm assuming. It's probably better in some ways. So I'm joking. But um, I struggle. Uh, it's not my default setting, you know, even though I have that ability to, you know, I'd still say it doesn't come easy to me, data or, you know, percentages and things like that. I still have to, so if you didn't even have it, I, I definitely think it would preclude you from some aspect of the role.
3: Thank you very much for your contributions, <laughs> Carita. I mean, really appreciate it's it. Scary, you
5: feel- I have to say. <laughs>
3: Do feel free to hang around because we're going to go to Derek Robertson um, who is on the line and he's been a speaker on here before so he knows how to unmute himself. Derek, you've listened to what Karina had to say. You would have caught hopefully a bit of what Charlie had to say. What do you think? Should GCSE maths be a requirement to be a teacher?
6: Uh, yeah, hi Tom. Uh, thanks for having me on. Um, you see, this has been a bugbear of mine for for many years and um, a lot of what I'm going to say is of course anecdotal but I'll start with a a woman, uh, a female colleague. She was a student teacher. I'd only been teaching a couple of years, and she came to teach the school as a student. Uh, She was um, a lecturer at one of the big universities in London. She was teaching history to degree level. She had her PhD. She had all of that stuff. But she wanted to be a secondary school teacher. And she came, and she was fabulous. Her passion, her classroom management, one of the – best teachers that I'd seen at that point in my career but she could not pass GCSE maths she simply couldn't she tried and she tried and she tried she couldn't get it she couldn't get couldn't answer the questions she got stressed in the exam and as time went on it got worse and worse each time she was getting uh more and more stressed in the end she didn't pass the teacher and yet she was a teacher you know she was up there in university teaching she had to give up on her dream of being a secondary school teacher and go back to teaching people at university. And for years, that that really bugged me. She clearly had enough functional maths to get to the point where she could teach history to degree level. All the maths she needed for the history classroom, she had. All the maths she would have needed to, to teach all the courses that we did, the understanding of whatever facts and charts and so on came up, she knew all of that. She just couldn't pass the GCSE maths. And that was sort of where I came into it for a while. And then, I know it was Kirsty was saying that she, (coughs) excuse me, struggled a little bit with the math. I get that. If you'd asked me, if I'd come on at the start, if I'd been first speaker, I would have said, no, get rid of it. You don't need to have it. Certainly not in the history classroom. Certainly not um, in various other ones. But I think, the more I think about it, yes, we should try and keep that qualification. We should have a good spread of GCSEs. Personally, I think that, you should have one from all of the sections. There should be a humanities GCSE, English, maths, a science, uh, an art, and a language GCSE. Especially if you know most of my uh, friends who were on the PGC with me went into primary. Um, stop me if I'm going too fast here. No, the, carry on, absolutely fine. The other, the other thing um, that sort of worried me for a start. I've been a teacher for a good few years. I came in just after they got rid of O-levels. So I had a GCSE, one of the first lots to do GCSE. I was top set maths. My class was supposed to be getting the A's. Didn't have A stars in those days. My class was supposed to be getting the A's. Not a single person in my top set maths class got an A. Two out of the 30 got a B. The rest of us got C's, D's and so on because at that time in the school... They didn't have the right number of maths teachers. They were struggling to get the right number of maths teachers. And our particular class, we didn't have a regular maths teacher. We didn't have good teaching. We didn't have all of that. So I worry that the, I'm going to say the word obsession, but the, the obsession of must pass a GCSE maths, yet if we remove that, there is a danger that we gain some teachers who might not be as professional as others, which I disagree with completely. Um, but if we maintain that, then there's a danger, obviously with my, my friends who went on to, it was, she's a professor now, who went on to become a professor, there's a danger that if we maintain that, we might be stopping certain people who are very, very, very good teachers and will be very, very professional from entering the job.
3: But the thing is, you. Derek, you know, you, you, Charlie was on first and he was talking about the fact that removing this requirement could devalue the profession. You're a NASWAT activist and a local association secretary. The unions have been making a lot of point, you know, a lot of arguments about the importance of ensuring that teaching is, I say, remains um one can argue that it's lost its high status as a profession um, although we've seen a lot of that return in the last year or so with higher than usual public support for a profession um, would rem- you know some people would argue here Derek that removing the bar or lowering the bar to enter teaching would reduce the status of the profession and would then give um, the government whoever that might be. Um, an excuse to lower pay to reduce conditions um what do you make
6: of that no i disagree i, I get yeah as a as a union activist and you know it's uh, it's great to see other any members on here but yeah i get that that's the, this, this an argument you could have That in my 20 plus years of teaching no one's ever said to me in the classroom or, oh right what was your gcse maths grade If they asked me, I'd say I barely got a C. They don't see me as any less of a professional because I don't have math. Likewise, they don't see me as any less of a professional. I don't have a PE GCSE. My music GCSE, not great. You know, they don't actually have that much impact. They might ask me occasionally about my A-levels.
3: But well, you're, you're looking here at the micro level, which is te- students and teachers in the classroom. What I'm looking at here is the macro level of reducing the bar to become a teacher nationally, uh, giving whoever's in charge the government um the ability to reduce conditions and reduce pay if teachers don't you know if teachers don't have to have say a degree or GCSE maths then that can you know we we know there are a lot of unqualified teachers working in schools in england um who are you know on the uqt salaries um and they're earning less than m1 um this could lead to a wider erosion of conditions at a macro level
6: yeah I, I i understand perhaps i'm not coming across particularly well here absolutely and i i think that you know as a profession we should have um qts there should be a degree we should have some postgraduate qualifications i understand that and and i i really don't like that the government in england are doing this i have to say obviously i don't have any particular skin in that game because i'm teaching up in scotland but what i'm what i'm trying to come across is that perhaps maybe not necessarily remove it, but perhaps there should be a little bit more flexibility for those teachers who genuinely can't do it. Maths then becomes the one standard against which they are judged when they're never going to be teaching, sorry, other than supply or, uh, supply or whatever. You know, they're, they're judged they can't do this, that they can do every other single aspect of the job. But I know of people who can't do this or really struggling with this, and the idea that it might put some people off. Is there not some argument to say that we can have some flexibility
3: yeah, it's a really interesting argument. Thank you, Derek. Do you hold on because um, Benjamin has been on the line, it's been they uh um cognizant of what they want to do after school. But if they aren't, then in the UK, yes they need it. Um Benjamin, would you like to come on and explain oh, apparently I'm you're losing me, um admin. Um I'll just repeat that tweet from Benjamin. You can absolutely tell students that they don't need maths if they um, are aware of what they want to do after school. But if they aren't then in the UK, yes they need it. Um Benjamin, would you like to elaborate and explain that point for us?
7: Yeah, sure. Um, my perspective is going to be a bit of a weird one because I'm an overseas trained teacher. Um, and I've, I've I've lived in the UK for a long time, but I was trained in Australia uh, in a different university system than you guys have here. Um, and you guys invited me on probably because I, I was pretty vehement about this on the thread that you initially posted. Um I really strongly agree. Just as an aside, I really strongly agree with what the previous gentleman said. Uh, flexibility is the key. Um, in the Australian system, and I, I guarantee, I know this is not relevant to the UK, but in the Australian system, your maths grade is not uh, essential to get into a degree. It's based on your overall subject grade. So when I did my schooling, my maths grade uh, was not existent. I didn't do it in my final year exams. It, it wasn't compulsory. Um But I did get into humanities, and I knew what I wanted to study, which was history. Um, And so I did, and I got a BA in that, and then I got an MA in that, as well as in top of education. So I did pass education and history with distinction, but I never, ever got a maths grade. Uh, When I moved here, I was an overseas-trained teacher. Um, So by the standards that's being applied here, I shouldn't be a teacher, but I've been doing it in the UK for 12 years. And the thing about this is, yes, I understand the point of view that there's an idea that if we don't have teachers that are trained in mathematics, that it's devaluing the profession, I get that. And this is my point. If I was talking to a student of mine who said, I don't know what I want to do after school, then I would say to them, look, in the UK system genuinely you need at least a a C in the old grades or a four now in, you know, English, maths and science. Uh, But if a student said to me, no, sir, I really, really, really want to be a musician or teach music, part of me is like, why should you need a maths degree to do that? I mean, if a student goes through and gets an A-level grade that's off the charts in their chosen subject and they want to teach that... This is part of me as, a, as an overseas trained teacher that sort of amazes me about the UK, because other countries don't work this way. If I, I could never be a maths teacher, and I shouldn't be allowed to be, um, I mean, I'm as a disclaimer, I'm I'm dyscalculic, but. my history grades are off the charts and I've been teaching it for a long time. And this is what I agree with the previous speaker. I think flexibility is really important. I think if if we limit our students by, well, you're great at all this, but you didn't get this grade in that one subject. I don't know if this is going to fix recruitment. And I agree with some of the previous speakers, it probably won't. But I just think we should be a little bit more open to the fact that, okay, you're a genius at art, you're a genius at French, you're a genius at physics. Well, that's a bad example. You're a genius at, you know, whatever, but your math sucks. Why aren't we allowing these people the opportunity? If they can pass a degree in their chosen subject and they can pass uh, an education, master's or diploma or however we're getting them in, why shouldn't we let them teach?
3: Mm. but there's this wider argument here yes that's a very strong argument but if you have people who are gifted in their particular subjects let them go and teach that subject but Mm. then if you're if they're if you're teaching a history lesson or somebody's teaching an art lesson to year 10 or year 11 and one of the kids in there says oh i hate maths i've got to fail it and that teacher turns around and says well i got a grade two and look at me i'm teaching um you know it's our other arguments about sort of the impact on the students in in England there you know well in every country but well not in every country, but certainly in England it's been well documented this idea of maths anxiety of um you know of children and of adults who um you know just don't have a very bad feeling about maths and how it just sort of gets in the way and you know we want a population that is numerous but you know is able to do maths and putting role models in front of students who maybe don't have a qualification in maths or in english um it could devalue that and create this sort of negative feedback loop what do you make of that benjamin
7: well it's a bit of an inverse to that too i mean uh... If you're the most numerate teacher in the world and you're standing in front of a classroom and you say, yep, I'm great at maths, great. But as the previous speaker said, there are going to be some people who are super competent in one area, but not in another. And I think it's not a disservice to students to see that you might not be great at something, but you can still do well. I don't understand why that's a problem. I mean, we don't ask math teachers to be competent in French or chemistry or biology or whatever. But you can still excel, even if there are weaknesses in your academics. Um, So I don't know. I don't know if that's an adequate answer. I'd love to explore
3: this further with you, um, Benjamin, possibly another time. But it is 8:59, and so we yeah, are going to have to wrap up you. here, which All I'm good. very, very sad about. Um, but thank you very much to Benjamin for calling in, and also to Derek Roberts and to Karina Garrick, um, and to Kirsty Patrillo, who is resitting GCSE maths to become an English teacher, um, to Charlie Dessa, who is a deputy head of maths and started off his conversation with us, and a big thank you, of course, to Vanessa. Um, who um, was joined me for the first half of the show to talk about building a reading culture in schools. Um, A big shout-out, of course, to our sponsors, John Cat Educational. Do go and check out their latest resources at the John Cat Bookshop. Um, And I will see you in four weeks time is it the 30th of january is it 31st that's 28 days away isn't it um i'm going to be talking about the importance of holocaust education in schools and i've got some cracking um, teachers lined up to talk about the work that they're doing in their schools um on that um this show will be available to listen back to on the teachers Talk radio website ttradio.org forward slash listen back where you can check out our latest collections our groups of shows um grouped by by topic and by subject so we've got shows on teaching maths shows on teaching english shows on teaching history um, shows on global voices shows on artificial intelligence shows on digital skills shows on literacy shows on just about everything and it's growing all of the time so do go out and check out our collections and of course all of our shows at ttradio.org forward slash listen back thank you very much to our speakers tonight thank you to lucy who's been a wonderful admin and i shall see you in four weeks time
0: bye bye